years before, you wouldn't have picked my brother Yancey and I for heroes. No chance. Alright, let's suit up and kick some ass! We were never star athletes. Never at the head of the class. But we could hold our own in the fight. And it turned out we had a unique skill. We were drift compatible. Happening, my man. How'd that date with Allison go last night, Mr. Choi? Oh, she loved me, but boyfriend, not so much. You're gonna get your ass kicked. <laughs> a man's gotta do what a man's gotta do, brother. Gage drop, Mr. Choi. <clears throat> Gage drop, sir. Marshal Pentecost on deck. Securing the comp pod, getting ready to drop. For drop. Gypsy Danger, ready for the big drop. Here we go. Here we go. Coupling confirmed, sir. Engage pilot to pilot protocol. Engaging now. Pilot to pilot connection protocol sequence. Welcome to Verbal Diorama, episode 213, Pacific Rim. This is the podcast that's all about the history and legacy of movies you know and movies you don't. And as always, welcome to Verbal Diorama. Whether you are a brand new listener to this podcast, whether you are a regular returning listener, welcome back if you are. Thank you for being here. Thank you for choosing to listen to this podcast. I am, as always, so happy to have you here for the history and legacy of Pacific Rim. And this is a movie that I unashamedly, unabashedly, 
unapologetically love. So I'm really happy to be here talking about Pacific Rim. But before I get into that, I just want to say as always, thank you for the reception that you always give to previous episodes of this podcast. So recently I've done episodes on the 1998 Godzilla remake and also Shin Godzilla. And just like Shin Godzilla, actually, this week's movie also has links to Neon Genesis Evangelion, albeit visual links rather than creative ones. But clearly the listeners of Herbal Diorama love both the US and Japanese Godzilla, and this isn't the last time I will be featuring either. So thank you for the comments and support for both. Godzilla will return to the podcast at some point in the future. But for now, Kaijun, as it stands currently, after doing episodes on The Host, Godzilla 98 and Shin Godzilla, Kaijun concludes with Guillermo del Toro and his earnest, loving homage to kaiju movies, to anime, the movies that he loves. And it's also his highest grossing movie as well. Now, Guillermo del Toro is no stranger to this podcast. I featured many of his previous films on this podcast. He's mostly known for his art house films, but del Toro is a sort of director who really can put his mind to anything, as long as he has a very distinct love for the material. And this material is a carefully orchestrated, smashy, smashy robot versus monster movie. And it's not the first time I'm going to mention Transformers, but it's definitely better than quote unquote other robot movies that are out there. I'm going to come back to Transformers. I'm also going to come back to the sequel a bit later too, because I have bits to say about that. But do you know what? We're just going to jump straight in. We're going to get in our Jaeger. But before we do, we're going to become Idris Elba. Now, I am no Idris Elba. But today, today, at the edge of our hope, at the end of our time, we have chosen not only to believe in ourselves, but in each other. Today, there is not a man nor woman in here that shall stand alone. Not today. Today, we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today, we are cancelling the apocalypse. Here's a trailer for Pacific Rim. We always thought alien life would come from the stars. But it came from deep beneath the Pacific. What the hell is going on? The first kaiju made land in San Francisco. The second attack hit Manila. Then the third one hit Cabo. Then we learned this was not going to stop. In order to fight monsters, we created monsters of our own. We needed a new weapon. The Jaeger program was born. Two pilots, our minds, our memories, connected. And man and machine become one. Today, at the edge of our hope, 
believe in each other. The day we face the monsters that are at our door. Today we are canceling the apocalypse. Pretty cool. future, colossal creatures known as kaiju emerge from an interdimensional portal deep beneath the Pacific Ocean. To combat this threat, humanity develops Jaegers, massive robots controlled by two pilots linked through a neural bridge. Raleigh Beckett, a former Jaeger pilot haunted by the loss of his brother in battle, is reluctantly pulled back into action by his former commanding officer, Stacker Pentecost. Raleigh is paired with rookie pilot Marco Mori, who has a personal vendetta against the kaiju. Together they form an unlikely team and pilot the legendary Jaeger known as Gypsy Danger. As they battle the Kaiju, Raleigh and Mako uncover a plan by the Kaiju to create an even larger and more powerful monster that could wipe out humanity. Let's run through the cast. We have Charlie Hunnam as Raleigh Beckett, Idris Elba as Marshall Stacker Pentecost, Rinko Kikuchi as Mako Mori, Charlie Day as Dr. Newton Geisler, Ron Perlman as Hannibal Chow, Robert Kaczynski as Chuck Hansen, Max Martini as Hercules Hansen, Clifton Collins Jr. as Tendo Choi, Bern Gorman as Dr. Herman Gottlieb, and Diego Klattenhoff as Yancey Beckett. Pacific Rim has a screenplay by Travis Beecham and Guillermo del Toro, story by Travis Beecham, and was directed by Guillermo del Toro. And all of the movies in Kaiju have been linked in some way, and not just because they're all movies about Kaiju. The host and Shin Godzilla had man-made disaster. Godzilla 98 and Shin Godzilla, obviously by the character of Godzilla, all are pretty decisive versions of man being the monster. Maybe not so much in Godzilla 98, but to be honest, it is mostly the human characters who are laying waste to New York City in that movie than Godzilla himself. And man being the monster is something that Guillermo del Toro knows all about. But before we jump into a director that this podcast absolutely adores, and a movie I absolutely adore in Pacific Rim, we need to talk about Travis Beecham. Beecham wrote his first spec script, A Killing on Carnival Row, fresh out of film school, which was optioned by New Line Cinema in 2005. And that movie would never materialise and would eventually become the Amazon Prime show, Carnival Row, which had two seasons from 2019 to 2023. But during the development for a film version of A Killing Carnival Row, Guillermo del Toro would be involved briefly as potential director. Now, it does seem a lot like del Toro is always the in-consideration director for every unmade script in Hollywood. And to be honest, that's probably a podcast topic in its own right. But A Killing at Carnival Row would not only link Beecham to del Toro, but also show Beecham had potential as a screenwriter. He would be hired in 2006 to rewrite the Clash of the Titans remake, which he would receive a final screenplay by credit for, but it was another spec script for a movie called Pacific Rim, 
which would pay homage to Toho's classic Godzilla, and Beecham had always wanted to see a high-budget summer blockbuster of the giant mech, giant monster subgenre that had sophisticated digital and practical effects. He pictured a giant monster emerging from the grey surf as he stood on the Santa Monica Pier one day, far behind the Ferris wheel in the dense fog. Jaegers were to be the last line of defence for humanity against the kaiju menace, and this is where he first realised this was something that he would like to see. From then, he developed the basic scenario and story outline, and then it took two people to pilot a Jaeger based on the myth of dinosaurs having two brains due to their immense size. Beecham's main points of reference for his script were, of course, Godzilla films, especially Destroy All Monsters, and the cartoon series Voltron and The Big O. Once Clash of the Titans had been released in 2010, he would have drinks with his agent and manager who asked him what he had set up next. And so he told them his idea for Pacific Rim. And what was next was them sending an outline to his agent to send to Legendary Pictures. Before the day was out, Legendary bought the outline and a few days later it was sent to Guillermo del Toro, who was attracted to it immediately because of his love of kaiju movies. But he also loved the human element to the story. Beecham would say about del Toro, quote, he grabbed onto the essence of it in a way even more directly than I articulated it in the outline. He comes from a place of emotional earnestness, so he was able to connect with it, unquote. So at this point, Del Toro was involved as producer only, not as a director. This is because his passion project at the Mountains of Madness had been announced after years of work. Based on the HP Lovecraft novella, Del Toro and screenwriter Matthew Robbins had been working on the adaptation since 2006, but Warner Brothers had been hesitant to greenlight it due to the source material being supposedly unfilmable and also were bulking at the cost. In July 2010, it was finally announced with James Cameron producing, Del Toro directing and Tom Cruise starring, with Del Toro confirming production would start in May 2011. In March 2011, Universal, who were actually making the project at that time, backed away from it due to Del Toro's insistence on an R rating. It looked like At the Mountains of Madness was definitely not happening. Del Toro, who was still actively working on the script with Travis Beecham for Pacific Rim, would decide to take directorial duties and commit to Pacific Rim. At the Mountains of Madness would be cancelled on the Friday, and Del Toro was on board for Pacific Rim on the Monday. It would be a consolation prize, and also his first directorial job for five years, but also one that he would take a great deal of personal joy and satisfaction from. Together, Del Toro and Beecham would plan the intimate details of the world they were building, with the quote-unquote Bible being put together as they built the mythology. During filming, all the information in the Bible was sent to a company to print it and bind it into a complete document that could be essentially referenced forever. It included all the history of the kaiju and Jaegers, every previous battle, details of the world, and what it was like to live in, how the Jaegers worked and were built, the history of the kaiju and their alien overlords. The first draft of Pacific Rim was turned in late 2010, early 2011, and the release date was penciled in for summer 2013. All in all, 14 drafts of the script were written. The opening montage became one of the most important storytelling points for Beecham and Del Toro to set up the plot and provide enough backstory without becoming too overstuffed. It was a collaborative affair between story and design. It was conceived at Guillermo Del Toro's house with his in-house design team led by Wayne Barlow, and the writing of Raleigh Beckett's monologue interspersed with clips of news programming detailing the emergence of the kaiju threat and how the world has coped since their introduction 
and subsequent retirement of the Jaeger programme, and most symbolically, the building of a wall. Beecham would say, quote, the wall represents a bureaucrat's solution to the problem and the plodding inelegance versus the aspirational inventive drive of the Jaeger problem, taking action versus withdrawing and crossing your fingers, is designed to look like a really stupid idea, a blatantly bad idea. What do kaijus do? They knock down buildings. I don't know that it represents anything in particular other than an attitude, unquote. In Beecham's original draft from 2007, he wanted to make the characters feel like real people in real situations. And the diversity we see in the finished film stems from the diversity from his original draft. Often the script is diversified once a movie is in production, but for Travis Beecham, he wrote Stacker Pentecost as a black British man. Mako Mori was always a Japanese woman. It was important from the get-go that not all of the lead characters were white and American, and that this was an issue the whole world was facing, not just America. That doesn't mean that white actors weren't considered for Stacker Pentecost. Most famously, Tom Cruise was considered, but he was busy making Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol at the time and was also signed on for both Rock of Ages and Jack Reacher and the dates just would not work. Del Toro wanted to depict as much practically to make the world feel textually real and wanted a real scale of the size of the Jaegers. He took inspiration from World War II bombers and tanks and oil tankers, vehicles that you don't think are that big until you see them for real. He also wanted to ensure the Jaegers weren't pristine and shiny. He wanted worn dented, scratched metal, for it to look battle-hardened. The huge practical sets with green screens would take over the entirety of Pinewood Studios and partially overtake two other studios. Design was vital. Del Toro, who's known for his practical monsters, wanted Kaiju to have the basic proportions of a man in a suit to pay homage to the classic suitmation of early Kaiju films, to use easy-to-read silhouettes and common elements like bioluminescent markings, Real-life creatures were referenced like goblin sharks and elephants, but never any other cinematic monsters. Exactly the same with the Jaegers. They had their own individual designs, but no other movie robots could be referenced. And this was a technically challenging movie. Only a small portion of the roughly 100 kaiju and 100 Jaegers that were created for the movie were used. And each week, the creators would do an American Idol and choose the best ones. The first kaiju to appear in the movie, Knifehead, is a throwback to the heavy kaiju of the 1960s Japanese films, and his head was modelled like a goblin shark and is meant to resemble a man in a rubber suit. Del Toro's favourite kaiju, the bouncer-like leatherback, spews electromagnetic charges and was inspired by the weighty motions of a gorilla. The kaiju Otachi plays homage to the mythological dragons of China, it was given numerous features over the course of its nearly 20 minutes on screen, earning the director's description of a Swiss army knife of a kaiju. The creature has multiple jaws, an acid-filled neck sack, and wings that can be extended when needed. It's also more intelligent than the other kaiju. It uses Jaeger-defeating tactics that are inspired by eagles. The kaiju that orphans Makomori on Ibaba has the appearance of a cross between a Japanese temple and a crustacean, the largest kaiju, Slattern, is distinguished by its extraordinarily long neck and half-horn, half-crown head, which Del Toro thought to be both majestic and demonic. Gypsy Danger, the American Jaeger, was based on the shape of New York City's Art Deco buildings, such as Chrysler Building and the Empire State Building, but infused with John Wayne's Gunslinger Gate and hip movements. Cherno Alpha, the Russian Jaeger, was based on the shape and paint patterns of a T-series Russian tank, 
combined with giant containment silo to give the appearance of a walking nuclear power plant with a cooling tower on its head. Crimson Typhoon, the three-armed Chinese Jaeger, is piloted by triplets and resembles a medieval warrior. Its texture evokes Chinese lacquered wood with golden edges. Striker Eureka, the Australian Jaeger, is likened by Del Toro to a Land Rover, the most elegant and masculine Jaeger. It has a jutting chest, camouflage paint scheme recalling the Australian Outback and the bravado of its pilots. And I mentioned that Del Toro took inspiration from World War II bombers. And I feel like this is the ideal opportunity to clear up any misunderstanding because I feel like there is quite a lot of misunderstanding about the name Gypsy Danger in this movie. Now, the name Gypsy Danger does not refer to the slur against the Traveller or Romani communities. It is a reference to the de Havilland Gypsy Major, which was designed by Frank Halford. It is an aircraft engine produced in the 1930s by de Havilland and used most famously in the Tiger Moth biplane. The band the Gypsy Kings also named after this engine because in military service, the 12-cylinder Gypsy engine was known as the Gypsy King and the six-cylinder the Gypsy Queen. While the jet engine would become the engine of choice for aircraft going forward, Gypsy major engines still remain today, with civil aviation authorities still having several de Havilland Tiger Moths registered on their system. I know a lot of people are uncomfortable referring to the Jaeger in this movie as Gypsy Danger because they feel like they are using a slur, but both Travis Beecham and Guillermo del Toro have come out to say that it's not in reference to this community, it is in reference to the de Havilland Gypsy Major. But some people do prefer to call it G-Danger or other variations of the name. The cast, which was as diverse as its characters, came together reasonably quickly. Charlie Hunnam, who'd auditioned for Prince Nuada in Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, impressed Del Toro at that audition. And while Luke Goss was cast as Nuada, Del Toro kept Hunnam's number and called him up for Pacific Rim. He liked Hunnam's everyman nature, the fact he was a down-to-earth guy you'd like to have a few beers with. He had to believably be a guy with nothing to lose, a guy who not only witnessed but felt the loss of his brother to a kaiju while they were linked in the drift. And I mentioned Stacker Pentecost was always written as a British black man, and it needed to be a man with a presence and authority and complete badassness to be able to tell Charlie Hunnam what to do. Del Toro saw the TV show Luther, and knew Idris Elba would be the perfect Stacker Pentecost, that he could humanise Stacker, give him the emotional depth necessary, as well as deliver a badass monologue. And I think we can all agree that Idris Elba in this movie is chef's kiss perfection. When writing Mako Mori, it was essential that she wasn't just the token female character. Del Toro didn't want her to be a sex kitten parading around in skimpy clothing just to be the love interest. Academy Award and Golden Globe nominee Rinko Kikuchi, she was nominated for Babel in 2006, had only appeared in her first English language film in 2009, and by 2013 she had improved her English by watching episodes of The Voice. Riley and Marco needed to have chemistry, but not necessarily sexual or romantic chemistry. Del Toro filmed the fight choreography like a love scene on purpose, but also because of the idea of drift compatibility, that two people would link their minds in order to pilot both sides of the Jaeger. And while the movie doesn't go into the concept in much detail, it's a fascinating exploration of psychological trauma that two damaged people can metaphorically become one. There's also the idea of the ethics of the drift, having no choice but to accept that your drift partner will know you intimately and you'll also know them intimately too. 
Del Toro would simplify this further, quote, the pilot's smaller stories actually make a bigger point, which is that we're all together in the same robot in life. Either we get along or we die. I didn't want this to be a recruitment ad or anything jingoistic. The idea of the movie is just for us to trust each other, to cross over barriers of colour, sex, beliefs, whatever, and just stick together, unquote. Pacific Mim also brought back together the regular collaboration of Guillermo del Toro and this podcast's personal favourite, Ron Perlman, their fifth collaboration. Ron Perlman as black market kaiju organ dealer Hannibal Chow. And it makes perfect sense in a capitalistic world that humans would make money from kaiju organs and cadavers would become a black market commodity. And this seems to be based on real life poaching of rare animals. Now, obviously, this movie has a huge $190 million budget but they still had to be smart with the budget that they had. So they would reuse sets as often as possible, redressing streets to be multiple other streets. For Hong Kong, a single set was built over six stories and reused to show multiple areas of the city. Del Toro wanted the film to be international, but not necessarily to use the old cliches of destroy famous landmark to show your in-named city. Of course, if you're going to have monsters coming out of the ocean in San Francisco, it does make sense to have the Golden Gate Bridge. But for the scenes in Tokyo, Del Toro wanted to keep it street level and he wanted to show the monster from a viewpoint of a child as well as eventually show a kaiju birth because neither of those things had been seen before in these movies. He also wanted to juxtapose the darkness of Godzilla, both literally and figuratively. Godzilla was a coping mechanism after World War II, a fearsome monster out to destroy Japan, but eventually became a beloved national hero, a cultural icon celebrated across the world for his Japanese roots. It's almost a level of mythology akin to Greek and Roman myths, but a lot more modern. It's contrast to the vivid neon saturation of the world of Pacific Rim, all concrete and metal, all worn and lived in, but with Del Toro's trademark blues and ambers. And to make this world a reality, they needed visual effects. And one of the reasons this movie still holds up 10 years later and holds up mostly compared to its sequel is the mix of practical and digital effects. Practical effects like the kaiju skin mites, which were brought to life by practical effects studio Spectral Motion using moulds and mechanical legs. Miniatures were also used for some of the scenes of destruction, emulating those original miniature sets from 1954's Godzilla. The Jaeger control pods were huge practical sets mounted on multi-axis gambles to shake drop and react punches. They were built by Legacy Effects. Legacy Effects also designed and built the pilot suits and helmets. Legacy Effects also built Iron Man suit. Yes, that Iron Man suit was built by Legacy Effects. Oscar winner Clay Pinney, who you may remember from the episode on Godzilla 1998, also worked on the visual effects of Pacific Rim. The Jaeger control pods were also incredibly challenging for the actors. They would spend up to 14 hours a day connected to the pods. A bathroom break would take an hour to dismount, get out of the suit and then get back in the suit and get back in the pod. A lot of the actors would complain about the discomfort and the time that was spent in these pods. But the only actor who never complained once was the legendary Rinko Kikuchi. I love her so much. Now, of course, they could have just CG'd all the mechanics, but that wouldn't have any weight. And one thing this movie has is weight. Every smash and crash feels heavy. And to be honest, it's what sets it apart from movies like Transformers, along with literally every other design decision ever made in this movie. 
Other miniatures include the scene in which a Jaeger destroys the internal floor of an office building. This was created by Visual Effects Team 3210. They created an office building, fully dressed office cubicles at a quarter scale. The fist moves through the miniature office floor. Everything was 3D printed here as well, which is also incredible. Just look at the level of detail in these offices. So the fist goes through the floor, is being tracked by 3D cameras on separate pneumatically driven rigs, and it basically shatters everything in its path. The Jaeger fist was then digitally added in post. Another image created by 3210 shows several rows of seats at a football stadium being destroyed as a Jaeger lands there, using miniature seats that were destroyed by air cannons. 3210 also offered the Industrial Light and Magic Compositive team a number of useful components, such as things like dust clouds, shattered glass, and water effects. And water specifically was something that Guillermo del Toro was really invested in making sure that digital water actually looked spectacular in this movie. Because, as I've said in previous episodes of this podcast, digital water is so hard to get right. But this movie is 10 years old. It still looks great. Industrial Light and Magic took the majority of the digital effects alongside Hybride, a division of Ubisoft who did graphic design for the holographic projections inside the Jaeger cockpits and control rooms. Hybride's graphic designers were faced with the challenge of creating digital signatures for graphics to help identify each robot's country of origin, allowing audiences to instantly recognise each Jaeger. Del Toro's own Mirada Studios, which he founded with cinematographer Guillermo Navarro and Motion Theory co-founders Javier Jimenez and director Matthew Cullen, is equal parts design studio, visual effects and animation facility, as well as a development and production company. Mirada opened in December of 2010 and they were instrumental in creating the documentary-style opening prologue, detailing the history of the Kaiju Menace, this sequence had to make the unthinkable seem plausible, while also providing an extremely succinct account of the social, political, economic, religious and environmental effects of the alien invasion and subsequent war. Matthew Cullen used 3D map paintings and astute locations scouting in Thailand, Melilla, Germany, Washington DC, San Francisco and Los Angeles to create the majority of the mass destruction. And this splinter unit was tiny compared to the movie, so they had to be resourceful with their work and choose settings that offered a stable foundation for the chaos that was going to be depicted on screen. They discovered a place in Thailand where building crews collected materials from demolished buildings. Thousands of square metres were covered in piles of cement posts and other random items, making it the ideal backdrop for a city in upheaval. A fallen Jaeger and a deserted city in the distance were then added digitally to this real-life set. They also researched real-life global catastrophes and how different cultures had adapted to them. Del Toro didn't initially want to film the movie in 3D, explaining that it wouldn't work with the size of the Jaegers and Kaiju, although some scenes were filmed with red epic cameras on 3D rigs. He later changed his mind and Pacific Rim was converted to 3D, with the conversion itself taking an additional 40 weeks. This was despite the movie being cut down to an ideal two-hour runtime. It ended up two hours 12, but what's 12 minutes between friends? Pacific Rim has its critics. I am not one of them. But it is criticised for its lack of character depth. And much of the additional footage that was cut went into individual character arcs. The editing was assisted by Del Toro's friends, Alejandro Gonzalez Iñárritu and Alfonso Cuaron. Iñárritu cut 10 minutes of footage and Cuaron cut a few minutes and also rearranged a few scenes. 
And the film's end credits include special thanks for Inyaratu, Quaron, James Cameron and David Cronenberg. And speaking of special thanks, it's time to segue into the obligatory Keanu reference for this episode. And if you don't know what that is, it's where I link the movie that I'm featuring with Keanu Reeves. Now, Keanu Reeves, he was not in The Host. He was not in Godzilla 98. He was also not in Shin Godzilla. And he's also not in this either. But also out in 2013 was the movie 47 Ronin, which starred Keanu alongside who else but Rinko Kikuchi. And honestly, I wish I could just do an episode dedicated to Rinko Kikuchi because I genuinely think that she is outstanding in this movie. I absolutely love her. I love Marco Mori. I'm going to talk more about Marco Mori a little bit later. But Kikuchi would say, quote, it was fantastic working with Keanu. I love him and I really respect his work, unquote. And to be honest, I have to say it's fantastic working with Keanu too. For every single obligatory Keanu reference, I love him too. And I also really respect his work and the work of Rinko Kikuchi. Now, the music of Pacific Rim really did not need to slap this hard, but it does. And it's all thanks to Raman Javadi, who also scored Iron Man, another link to Iron Man there, and Game of Thrones. The score also includes guest musicians Tom Morello and Priscilla Arn. And honestly, the score for this movie is one of my favourite things about it, because as soon as the music starts, I know I'm going to have two hours and 12 minutes of complete and utter joy. So you're probably wondering if I do have any criticisms of this movie. I actually do. But overall, I just think this movie is so amazing. I've been wanting to cover this movie in such a long time. Again, I know I always say that, but I adore this movie so much. The original release date for Pacific Rim was set for the 12th of July, 2013. But Warner Brothers decided to advance the movie's release date to the 10th of May, 2013. And then it was announced in March 2012 that the movie would be released on its original date of the 12th of July 2013. I've not been able to find a reason why they decided to change it and then change it back. The world premiere of Pacific Rim happened in Mexico City on the 1st of July 2013. It was released wide in the US on the 12th of July 2013, the same week as Grown Ups 2 which would beat it into second place at the box office. Number one was Despicable Me. So Pacific Rim entered the US chart at number three. It would stay in the top 10 for three weeks. On a $190 million budget, Pacific Rim grossed $101.8 million in the US and $309.2 million elsewhere for a worldwide total gross of $411 million. Its domestic U.S. gross was considered a disappointment. And while its U.S. box office was seen as a disappointment, China really loved this movie. And it's thanks to China that Pacific Rim did as well as it did. It was the number one movie in China for four weeks. It was the sixth largest Chinese debut for any Hollywood film. This was despite a Chinese military officer claiming Pacific Rim was U.S. propaganda. The idea to make a sequel was purely driven by its popularity in China. I'm going to come back to the sequel. Strap into your Jaegers for that one. A critically Pacific Rim received generally positive reviews for its visual effects, action sequences, performances, musical score and nostalgic style. They were all highly praised. It has a 72% on Rotten Tomatoes. And while many argued it was style over substance, 
it was highlighted for its similarities to Neon Genesis Evangelion and also bringing anime to live action. Many critics did highlight its paper-thin plot and Charlie Hunnam as the weak spot in the performances. Japanese game director Hideo Kojima, who famously designed and wrote Metal Gear Solid, called it the, quote, ultimate otaku film, unquote. Pacific Rim would win an Annie Award for Outstanding Achievement Animated Effects in a live-action production and be nominated for Outstanding Achievement Character Animation in a live-action production. It would also get a BAFTA nomination for Best Special Visual Effects 2. So, sequels. There's a Pacific Rim uprising-shaped elephant in the room that we need to address. First of all, the good things about Pacific Rim Uprising. John Boyega is always fantastic. He's great. Genuinely love John Boyega in everything I've seen him in. Nothing but great things for that man. But I really, really don't like Pacific Rim Uprising at all. And it's rare that I'll say that because I could always find something great about a movie. Well, I have, John Boyega. But the movie overall is really awful. It feels like a Transformers movie. There's no weight. Everything feels CG. All the tangibility is gone. The characters aren't very good. I don't feel emotionally connected to anyone. It's lighter and brighter, but that actually doesn't help. It just makes it look like a Transformers movie. And I mean that in the worst possible way that I can be describing a big robot movie in that it looks and feels like a Transformers movie. That was the sequel that we got. And Guillermo del Toro was only involved in a producer capacity on that sequel. But he did disclose his original plans three years after the premiere of Pacific Rim, telling the rap that the movie would have contained a significant amount of time travel. The tall spindly beings in the movie known as the Precursors would actually turn out to be humans born thousands of years into the future. And so it would turn out that the enemies of Pacific Rim were actually humans, wearing what appeared to be alien exobio suits, and to survive their future, they were going back in time to terraform and re-harvest the Earth that humanity had destroyed. It's a really interesting premise. Pacific Rim Uprising is not very interesting. Not to mention the fact that they killed off Mako Mori. A decision that will remain literally the worst decision that any movie has ever made in its existence. When you have a character like Mako Mori, you keep her alive. Spoilers for Pacific Rim Uprising, but please don't see it because if you love Pacific Rim, that's all you need. You don't need Pacific Rim Uprising. It's not worth it. Please don't watch it. Now, good things did come from Pacific Rim. So the story and universe of these films were expanded into an original anime series called Pacific Rim The Black that was released on Netflix on the 8th of November 2018. It followed two siblings who must control an abandoned Jaeger across a hostile landscape in a desperate attempt to find their missing parents. Craig Kyle and Greg Johnson, writers for Marvel Comics, would serve as showrunners with Polygon Pictures providing the animation. Polygon Pictures also did those Netflix Godzilla movies that I mentioned last episode. Pacific Rim the Black had two seasons and finished in 2022. And I don't normally talk about mockbusters on this podcast, but I feel like I need to because the Asylum would release their mockbuster of Pacific Rim called Atlantic Rim on the 9th of July 2013. I'm always amazed by mockbusters that they can turn them around so quickly, capitalise on the actual movies that they're borrowing from. Atlantic Rim was released direct to DVD 
uh, we got it in the UK on the 24th of June 2013. So earlier than the US. Yay for us. Now, I'm pretty certain that you know my thoughts about Pacific Rim already. I've been very clear about how much I love this movie. But let's move over to some social media thoughts and find out what everyone else thought. And we're going to start with the patrons. And we're going to start with perennial commenter Andy, who says, So Pacific Rim is one of those movies that turned out to not be exactly what I was expecting it to be. While I was expecting a mech versus kaiju action flick, I wasn't expecting there to be such a psychological heft which carried the movie. Shame on me, as carrying a childhood trauma is a hallmark of Del Toro's work. Unfortunately, the movie was too dark and noisy to really make an impression on a general audience, but I'm glad that it's here as part of the Del Toro oeuvre. And as always, I like to give patrons who have podcasts a bit of a plug. And you must know by now that Andy hosts a terrific podcast, Geek Salad. It is the one-stop shop for all of your geeky, nerdy, podcasty needs. And they cover everything. Movies, music, TV shows, games, all of the oeuvre. That's a great word, Andy. All of the oeuvre of geek and nerd culture. I will put information in the show notes for Geek Salad. We have a comment from Brett who says, I remember going to see this in theatres and it blew me away. Looking at this from the outside, you wouldn't expect it to be a Del Toro film. But once you watch it, you see how the dialogue plays out. And the practical effects mixed with the beautiful CG work blend as well as his other works, especially Hellboy. This film is a blast from start to finish with great Jaeger and Kaiju designs and memorable wacky performances, my favourite being from Charlie Day. And Brett also has his own podcast. It is called Dissect That Film. And... They do dissect that film. They review movies every week. They do movie retrospectives, new releases. They also talk about TV shows occasionally too. I will put information in the show notes for dissect that film. We have another comment from Derek who says, Del Toro can do no wrong and Pacific Rim is pure joy from start to finish. Giant robots battling giant monsters. What's not to love? Totally agree, Derek. That is just the perfect, succinct, Way to describe how I feel about this movie. And Derek, along with his amazing wife, Laurel, they host The Midnight Myth. And I actually talked earlier about mythological beasts and how it feels like the kaiju and the Jaegers are kind of mythological in the way they've been set up. And that's basically what Derek and Laurel do over on The Midnight Myth. They talk about mythology, philosophy, and how those subjects basically bubble up into everyday pop culture. I'll put some information in the show notes for The Midnight Myth. We have another comment from Zoe who says, Pacific Rim had the right fusion of anime and kaiju aesthetics that I enjoy. The story may have had some problems and some of the fights were kind of hard to see, but overall it's definitely a movie I can rewatch over and over again. And Zoe hosts Backlook Cinema, looking back to the cinema of the 70s, 80s and 90s that he loved. And he basically introduces them to his son, Zach, and sees what Zach thinks of those movies. I will put some information to Backlook Cinema also in the show notes too. And the final patron comment comes from Brendan who says, Guillermo del Toro in full blockbuster mode brings his knack for gorgeous yet terrifying imagery, compelling characters in outlandish situations, deeply resonant themes and meticulous attention to visual details to Kaiju Town and delivers one of the best examples of the genre. Moving over to Twitter, we're going to start with at DW Lundberg who said, for a dude who grew up on a steady diet of Voltron and Godzilla, Pacific Rim plays like crack. Every shot is filled with incredible dynamic detail. The kaiju and Jaegers move with real dexterity and weight, 
and the human characters are appropriately cardboard. Del Toro gets it. Ah, TSFTM pod said, Never in my life have I squinted as much as I did when seeing Pacific Rim at the cinema. Why, yes, I did later find out I needed glasses. Why do you ask? At Danny Brown CA said, I loved it. I was watching it with my son. He was nine when we watched it. And both of us had massive smiles all the way through and lots of, whoa, did you see that moments? This is how you do a live action anime. At So What Happens N1 said, This movie is what any live action anime should aspire to be. It's visually stunning. It's Del Toro who's shocked. The plot is a bit thin but doesn't pretend to be more than it is. It's a modern homage to old school mech anime instead of copycat and it pays off. At Zap Deuce said, Giant robots fight giant monsters. What's not to love? Del Toro captured what I loved about kaiju films as a child and modernised it for a new generation. The sequel? Well, that's another story. At Box Off Tangent said, It's terrific. I loved it when it came out and recently revisited it and my opinion hasn't changed. Sequel? Not so much. At Neil Burt said, When I first saw it, I wasn't convinced, but several years later I rewatched it and loved it. I feel ashamed that it took my rewatch on a smaller screen to appreciate a film that truly deserves the big screen. At Tom A and Tom 1 said, Overall, amazing film. I just wish it focused more on a bunch of countries that don't get along forming an easy alliance to fight monsters than the guy likes girl story. At Scuttle Lima said, I love this film. Such a fun creature feature and a great cast and visual effects. No comments on Instagram. Couple on Facebook though. So we're going to start with Tony who says, Pacific Rim is a fun romp and an interesting view of the other side of kaiju movies. How often do we see a film dealing with the aftermath and scientific study of kaiju monsters while simultaneously dealing with increasing attacks? The visual of this film are amazing. The world building is fantastic. And while I agree that the film may have a fault or two, it's still a fun adventure. And finally, Mark says, Honestly, this film has faults, but as would be expected from its creator, incredible visuals and world building and a lot of fun. One of those films are often just put on as it's so much fun. And thank you, everyone, for your amazing comments on Pacific Rim. And if you do want to have your comments read out in episodes of this podcast, the thoughts posts go up on social media, normally on a Friday. And just comment on the post wherever you find it, on Twitter, Instagram, or Facebook. I am at Verbal Diorama on all of those places. Comment on the post, I will read it out, and I will credit you as well. Pacific Rim. I love it so much. It's 10 years old this year. It still looks great. I still adore it. And the everlasting legacy of Pacific Rim isn't really anything to do with robots or monsters or its incredibly lackluster sequel. It's Mako Mori. Now, I said I'd come back to Mako Mori because of how much I love Rinko Kikuchi. But I want to talk about the Mako Mori test because this is quite important, actually. The Mako Mori test is a set of criteria created to gauge the degree of gender equality in a movie or TV show. Named after Mako Mori from Pacific Rim, it originated from the Bechdel test. Now, if you don't know what the Bechdel test is, it's sometimes called the Bechdel-Wallace test. It is a test created by Alison Bechdel, which has the following three simple rules. It has to have at least two women in the movie who talk to each other about something other than a man. So that is what the Bechdel test is. And the Makamori test basically takes the Bechdel test one step further. 
Because despite the fairly good representation of women in Pacific Rim, Pacific Rim fails the Bechdel test. So the Makomori test has separate requirements, which say that there must be at least one female character who has a distinct narrative arc independent of that of a male character. Now, there are movies that pass the Bechdel test, that fail the Makomori test. There are movies that fail the Bechdel test, but pass the Makomori test. And there are movies that fail both. In fact, I would argue there's probably more movies that fail both than pass both. Movies that pass the Makomori test include The Craft, Brave, Mulan, The Colour Purple, Sister Act, Miss Sloane, Wonder Woman, The Love Witch, and Carol. Movies that pass the Bechdel test and the Makomori test include movies like Spirited Away, The Incredibles, Tangled, Coco, or previous episodes of this podcast, Wonder Woman, Black Panther, Mad Max Fury Road, The Martian, Dread, The Cabin in the Woods, The Alien Saga. Also, previous episodes of this podcast, apart from Wonder Woman and The Martian. But other than that, oh, Rival as well also passes both. But otherwise, it's a really short list of movies that pass both the Bechdel and Makomori tests. But if we want true representation of female characters in movies, then really the Bechdel test and the Makomori test, two really good ways to gauge that. And the fact that this movie has a test based on a character in this movie makes the choice to fridge Marco, which is basically to kill her off, to give a male character something to avenge, even more grating in the sequel. Because to me, Makomori should have been the main character in Pacific Rim Uprising. She was primed to do it. Rinko Kikuchi deserved way better than what she got. You can actually hear more of my thoughts on Pacific Rim Uprising on the podcast Unequal Sequel, where I talk about my best, worst, and dream sequel. I don't think I need to give you a clue what my worst sequel was. I'll put a link in the show notes to that podcast episode from Unequal Sequel. They're a great podcast. I highly recommend them. But otherwise, I think this movie is the perfect encapsulation of what the world would do in a kaiju attack. You'd have huge worldwide mourning after the first and maybe the second attack. But I think it would take several attacks to actually do something. Think of the meetings from Shin Godzilla last episode. There would be so many worldwide meetings. Del Toro grounds this movie in a relatable reality. The first attack takes place in 2013. The movie itself is set in 2025. It makes perfect sense for the world to turn on the Jaegers if they don't seem to be fixing the issue. If the kaiju keep coming and keep coming more often, of course people are going to look at an alternative solution. And of course they're going to look to build a wall because walls are always the answer, right? Right? Anyway, if you look deeper into this movie, it does talk about how something like this would affect the world. It becomes a worldwide problem. You think of the worldwide pollution caused by Kaiju Blue, the depleting food and natural resources, refugees from affected coastal cities. The world has to unite to resolve it. Any other movie would have the US as the only country who could save us all. And maybe that's part of the reason this movie didn't do so well in the US. And maybe because this movie is not as dumb as many people are led to believe. It is. A dumb movie, but it's also quite a smart dumb movie. I think that's why I love it so much. I keep coming back to Transformers because they are similar and yet worlds apart. 
in tone, structure, story, cinematography, sound, weight, tangibility. Pacific Rim Uprising, if I could give it the mind of scathing criticism, feels like a Transformers movie and not a Pacific Rim movie. For Del Toro, this was his first movie in five years, and it was him metaphorically getting back into the Jaeger. And considering it wasn't the movie he wanted to direct, he gave it the gall of the gusto that he could. He would say in interviews how much he loved the experience, despite the ridiculously long 18-hour days and the short 103-day shoot. He would be involved in every decision and maintained a tight ship. Even the digital camera work feels like a real camera in its placement. These are the things that Guillermo del Toro thinks of, even in this quote-unquote B-movie. I can't tell you how much I love this movie wholeheartedly and unapologetically, but I do have criticisms. Personally, I think Charlie Hunnam is miscast as Riley Beckett. I don't think that he's quite what the role needs, but I do think his chemistry with Rinko Kikuchi is great. I believe that they can drift together. Rinko Kikuchi, fantastic. I want more Makanomori. And what else can I say about Idris Elba that hasn't already been said? He takes lines that could easily be cheesy and delivers them with power and passion. You fully believe that Idris Elba and Idris Elba alone will be cancelling the apocalypse. Pacific Rim works as a dumb popcorn movie and it works if you want to read more into it and it deserves more of an everlasting legacy than it got. It may not be your favourite Del Toro movie, but its sheer lunacy and enormousness means that it deserves to be one of them. Thank you for listening. As always, I would love to hear your thoughts on Pacific Rim. And as always, if you want to get involved and help this podcast grow, you are just by listening. So thank you so much, genuinely. But if you do want to help further, you could leave a rating or review wherever you found this podcast. You can go on social media. I'm at Verbal Diorama. And you can find me on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Letterbox. You can like posts. You can retweet posts. You can say hi. Whatever you wish to do, I am fully down with that. But really, if you've got friends and family who love Pacific Rim, as much as I love Pacific Rim, please tell them about this podcast episode. And if you do like this episode on Pacific Rim, you might also like the following previous episodes slash movies. Now, I've covered a lot of Del Toro on this podcast. I've done episodes on Hellboy, Hellboy 2 The Golden Army, Pan's Labyrinth, Blade 2. They're all in the Verbal Diorama back catalogue, and I love all of those movies. Completely. I am a huge fan of Del Toro. He's probably my favorite director. So I was always going to get to Pacific Rim at some point. But for the purposes of this episode, I'm going to recommend the previous episodes in Koi June. So episode 210, Bong Jun Ho's The Host. Episode 211, Roland Emmerich's Godzilla 1998. And 212, Hideaki Arno as Shinji Higuchi's Shin Godzilla. Because they're all fantastic. And all absolutely well worth watching and obviously listen to the episodes too. As always, give me feedback. Let me know what you think of my recommendations. So this podcast is going to be taking a week's break because I've got a lot on at the moment. Um, I'm starting to feel the strain. I'm starting to feel quite tired. And so for my health, for my mental health, I decided it would be a good idea to take the final week of June off. So that's what I'm going to be doing, but I'm going to be coming back in two weeks with an incredibly special episode. I have never covered an unreleased movie on this podcast before, and I have recently become incredibly fascinated by the work of Richard Williams. 
and especially his unreleased masterpiece, The Thief and the Cobbler. And so the next episode of this podcast is going to be on The Thief and the Cobbler. I appreciate that it's not a movie that many people have actually seen. There are versions of the movie that are available. There were versions of the movie that were released by companies like Miramax. They were heavily edited versions. There is a fan version that's available on YouTube. And I fully appreciate that not everyone is going to be interested in the story of The Thief and the Cobbler. But trust me, it is an absolutely incredible story of one man's mission to make the greatest animated movie of all time that never ended up getting released. And just for some context, Richard Williams was the animation director for Who Framed Roger Rabbit. And so that's the level of animation that we are talking about. And I'm so excited to actually be talking about something that never got made for a change. So please join me in two weeks for the history and legacy of The Thief and the Cobbler. And this podcast is free and it always will be free. But if you do want to help support the show financially, you can do so by signing up to verbaldiorama.com slash Patreon. And you can join the amazing patrons of this podcast, Simon E, Sade, Claudia, Simon B, Laurel, Derek, Vern, Kat, Andy, Mike, Luke, Michael, Scott, Brendan, Ian, Lisa, Sam, Jack, Dave, Chris, Stuart, Sunny, Drew, Nicholas, Zoe, Kev, Pete, Heather, Danny, Ali, Tyler, Stu, Brett, Philip and Michelle. Haven't you heard, patrons? The world is coming to an end. So where would you rather die? Here or in a Jaeger? My merch store is verbaldiorama.com slash merch. My email address is verbaldiorama at gmail.com. You can also say hello. You can give me feedback over at verbaldiorama.com as well. And you can also find my work at filmstories.co.uk. Find issues of the magazine that I write in and also web articles as well. And finally... Everyone, listen up. Today, today, at the edge of our hope, at the end of our time, we have chosen not only to believe in ourselves, but in each other. Today, there's not a man nor woman in here that shall stand alone. Not today. Today, we face the monsters that are at our door and bring the fight to them. Today, we are canceling the apocalypse. Yeah!